Hello and welcome to the Walk Podcast. My name is David Tiltman and this is the final episode of a special seven-part series on effectiveness, which we first developed last year in partnership with Fergus O'Carroll's On Strategy Showcase podcast. We've been bringing those episodes to Walk's own channel every Tuesday and we wrap it all up today. Now, the series has been looking at the important decisions that need to be made throughout the process of developing marketing communications. We think effectiveness is a team sport. It requires lots of different people uh, to work together throughout the process. And this particular episode features Karen Nelson-Field of Amplified Intelligence, and it looks at the importance of attention. Now, Karen is a regular contributor to Walk. I'm sure she needs no introduction to many of our listeners. Uh, And she is one of the real pioneers of the study of attention, which has been getting a lot of focus, uh, particularly in the media space, over the last few years. Now, a lot of that research, as I've said, has focused on the the media implications of, of attention. What do we actually mean by reach, for example? How do we price it? Uh, Are we sort of judging the channels we have available to us by the wrong measures and metrics? So uh, there's been a lot of work around that that space. Um, And Karen is one of the uh, leading figures in that that movement. But as those techniques have developed, we've started to see them be applied to creativity too, and how creativity and media intersect. Now, just as an example of that, in Cannes last year, Karen, uh, speaking alongside Orlando Wood and Peter Field, unveiled research that suggested that a lot of digital formats simply don't generate enough attention for creativity to work in terms of brand building. They just don't get eyes on screen for long enough for creativity to have that sort of brand impact. Uh, It's a bit of a a stunning finding. She refers to it in in this podcast too. Um, But it's an example of how the more we understand about attention, the more we can start seeing how uh, how creativity and media work together to have an impact. So if you're not already following the attention debate, it is definitely one to focus on. With that, we should hand over to Karen Nelson-Field and, of course, first of all, to Fergus O'Carroll. So I'm excited to have Karen here. Uh, I actually, Karen got on my radar a couple of months ago when, when you did that great uh, speech at Cannes, and I had heard of you before that, and I was just so drawn to the subject matter that you're trying to continuously sort of draw our attention to as an industry. So I thought for our comms uh, uh, segment that the topic of attention would be um, a really important area to sort of uh, focus in on. Now, in comms, we could have gone in a bunch of different directions. We could, be, we could have taken the sort of the idea direction. We could have taken media mix. We could have had a whole conversation around a bunch of things, allocation of budgets. There's so many different dimensions to it. But I, I, when I heard about attention metrics... I was like, okay, this this one needs to be the center of this. And apologies for those who who have interest in other areas of this. This does cross all of those other issues, though, because I think if you don't get attention right, or you don't understand that, or you're not conscious of it as you plan, uh, I think that, uh, again, there can be consequences further down the line. So I want to welcome Karen Nelson-Field. It's so great to have you on, Karen. 
Good morning. Oh, good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. I was so excited about your call. To be honest, I am an avid listener. And to be honest, this could not be more related to effective outcomes. And, you know, as we get into it, we'll talk about it. But I think attention as a metric, um, in my personal opinion, that's the core of it. It's it, it, There's nothing sort of fluffy about it. It is literally getting to the core of true effectiveness for reach-based planning. So I'm excited that you called. So let's let's start at the beginning, just to sort of set, set the stage for everybody. One of the things that that, that always used to sort of um, concern me uh, in agency land was the sort of assumptions that we make. And we make assumptions in every single department. But in media, there are, I, I think, a bunch of assumptions that media planners are forced to make when they're selecting media what's your what do you what do you think are some of those assumptions that make you uncomfortable that that media planners are having to make i just wrote a paper <laughs> where to start <laughs> well the irony is i literally just wrote a paper on this which is about to be launched but the biggest one for me um and i think you probably would have had to have been under a rock had you not seen sort of the interesting kind of interaction from Brian Sharp recently, but the stern reminder to stick to the basics. So, you know, everyone sort of accepts that reach-based planning is is possibly the best thing for brand growth and no one tends to disagree with that. But I think the assumption there is that each impression has what I call 100% potential volume, which means basically that all of the impressions you buy are watched 100% of, of the time by 100% of the audience. And that's certainly a fanciful ideal. So I think going back to your question, which is what are the assumptions media planners are forced to make, is that they are they they make an assumption that different media types um I guess achieve true reach-based planning, but don't really understand what sort of sits behind it in terms of what actual attention volume or, or viewing volume is there. And, and and I think, you know, when people actually understand that, and we can talk about this a bit later, um, I think that that will make their life easier. But assumptions for media planners go three ways as well. Like, so there's always trade-offs between reach, cost, um, and targeting, I guess. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, the one core true ideal for most is that reach is stable and reach is real and it's not and I think that's and I call this paper you know the downfall of modern measurements so we'll get into that but yeah I think that's a big one and so I mean it's it seems that it's a massive one because if we if is it is it is it because we haven't had the data to make the case that all reach isn't equal reach or isn't effective reach or is it a skepticism about what's out there I just think if you have to read this paper because when you actually see it on paper, the penny sort of drops. I think the core of this paper is that there's one single independent um, uh, variable that truly fails us, and that is time and view. So time and view was brought in at a time when we started to scale digitally, right? And at the end of the day, this is the core heart of the problem because viewers actually switch frequently between attention and inattention across the time the ad is actually on screen, but the time and view counter doesn't account for that. So if you think about the gaps that appear in time and view when someone's not looking, then 
you know, and, and you'll see in this paper that I think even on a good day, about one in three chance that your time in view second has someone looking, that's actually the core of the breakdown of reach-based planning, of anything to do with, um, you know, completion rate type measures, which is at the core of what we do from a digital perspective. And if you've seen the CAN uh, work that I did with Pete and Orlando, it's the core of the reason why share of voice and share of market critically fails us. And I feel sorry for viewability. So when, you know, even five years ago when I started talking about this, um, I started at viewability and sort of made quite bold statements of viewability fails us, but it does, but it's almost not its fault. It, the reason why it fails us is because the the fundamental measure that it relies on is critically flawed and that is time in view. So, yeah, and that when you actually think about that and that relationship between time and view and attention varies so drastically by not just platform but also format, what happens is if you can imagine a distribution, the amount of attention across time and view changes. So the volume that sits behind your reach-based planning across different formats changes quite drastically. So, you know, I hear not all reach is equal. And I think I coined that about five years ago when I first started this work. That all that reach it, is equal or no? That not all reach is equal. No, yes. Um, but I think when you, you really have to, because people sort of, it rolls off the tongue, but you really need to understand, think of it like, you know, a bucket and some buckets have a hundred percent, but most buckets have a lot less and some have 10% and some have 20% and some have 30%. It's, it's truly not all reach is equal kind of moment. And when you actually really understand that it's, it's like a, a light goes on because it's obvious why things are failing. And because it seems to me that that becomes a whole new dimension of media planning when you have to think about attention metrics as a factor in selection of media. It seems like it it adds a whole new consideration set that that I'm not aware that the industry has even given a, a lot of credence to or is afraid yeah, um, to. Yeah, look, I think I think we're. It's funny because I was talking about this this morning with with a colleague. I think where the industry gets confused is that it's called attention, right? Um, and it's called attention because it is about understanding whether humans are looking or not. But at the same time, I think advertisers struggle with that and think it's about an engagement to the ad or it's about interest in, you know, something someone's selling, whatever. But it, it is, it goes beyond that so deeply. It is and I, I won't say advanced viewability because it's not. Advanced viewability is using metadata only. This uses outward-facing human data. But it it really does solve this volume problem. So, so what it does is it can, you know, as you go into media planning, you can use this data. Reach will always be the currency, but you can use this type of data to to literally equalize this error. So you you can understand, okay, so this platform and this particular unit within the platform um, has this kind of distribution. That means I'll adjust this and that. And so it's think of it like signals in in commodities trading. Like it gives you a recommendation around this doesn't have a, a high attention volume. So you should add this plus that. And then this is your best optimization. There's a group who might say, oh, okay, well, this is an issue of not having distinctive creative in that particular in that particular uh, environment 
And but your your data points to the fact that you suggested it's not that because I mean many of us have experienced I've experienced it myself where you're on you're in an environment and a spot that is clearly a spot that has been running on TV is now running as a pre roll spot or is in some other environment where as as somebody in the industry I look at that and I go why is there not a more appropriate creative uh, spot running in this particular environment? Because who's going to watch that? It it seems that we don't pay enough attention to actual creative executions in the appropriate environment. But your data points to, to, if I understand it right, that, that the issue is not the idea. Uh, It's, 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 uh, can you explain why that is? Well, it's, it's actually not true. I, I do say creative is super important and, you know, Orlando's work proves that. So let me explain. So what we know <clears throat> is that the same creative performs worse or better in line with overall platform performance. What that means is is that, you know, one piece of creative might get seven seconds on platform A, then the same piece of creative will get 5.5, then 3.3, then 2.9 in line with the overall performance of that platform. Now I'm doing hand gestures here. It's I'm, I'm trying to describe a distribution, a decay, if you like, in performance of that same creative. And that, that decay where platform A performs the best and platform D performs the worst is the same regardless of creative regardless of country regardless we've been doing this for five years and there's very 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 few deviations from that now what that says is that it creative doesn't drive attention platform functionality defines the environment in which that creative can shine if that makes sense if creative was the driver you would get seven seconds across all platforms you would get five seconds across all platforms for that same crib. And that never, never happens. I've got to hope that as an industry, we've instinctively felt this to be a reality, but we've never had sort of the business case to, um, to make it, to elevate it, to be as an issue, because because I can't imagine. I mean, as as uh, as people in the industry, we're also consumers of a lot of this media content, and we can go to TikTok, or go to YouTube, or go to or go to watch something on Netflix or some streaming channel, and we can instinctively realize that there really should be different creative executions for each of these environments, based upon understanding the way. Uh, consumers engage with it and the basic functionality of that app. It's like inappropriate for certain types of creative and more appropriate for others. And, and, and I've always struggled with the fact that why aren't we custom creating unique content for unique platforms in yeah. meaningful ways? And as yeah. an industry, we're not used to that. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, you've, you've hit on another part of the hierarchy, Fergus, because it's actually, there is sort of context and, um, fit for format that fits within that hierarchy as well. Um, so it does make a difference, but it still doesn't mean that you'll get beyond this, what I call attention elastic limit. So you still will largely not deviate outside the norm, but what will happen is if you have all the tick, all the boxes ticked, so you have, you know, fit for format, you have the demographics that view more the creative is is engaging or emotional you will just sit at the top of that range if you like so people just need to understand that each platform and each format within each platform 
is bound by this range of attention that it can achieve regardless of all these things. So the goal is to get all of these things right and you'll sit at least at the top of that range. But deviating outside of that, very, very rarely see it. But to your point, that's because it's it's largely the platform functionality that plays that role. So I often get asked, asked about, um, you know, what causes distraction and Interestingly, a lot of these formats, platforms, apps, whatever you want to, websites, they they build them thinking that they're building them for high attention um, impact. But often it's the opposite. Their functionality actually forces or forges distraction. So you hit the nail on the head with that one. I hope I've explained it to your listeners quite well. I do. I do think that one of the things. I personally think was one of the worst things that happened to our industry is Nielsen put a paper out probably around seven or eight years ago about creative being the biggest impact in campaigns. Interestingly, they put it out when there was a creative product being launched. But I actually think it's interesting because they've made quite a, you know, it was a single set of data. It was um, pretty light on from a rigorous perspective, a rigor perspective, um, but it's made such a splash in the industry. So I get quoted that back at my face every single day of my life. Um, but, yeah, it's it's not the case. So speaking of making a splash, one of the things you said in your Cannes speech, you, you spoke with uh, with Orlando Wood and with Peter Field, you said that your research suggests that 70% of the ads we buy get zero attention. That got everybody's attention. And you know, I think I think again, we're not surprised by this, but it's so it's so stark to see it stated. How is how is that measured? And and why is that happening? Is it because of what we're is it is it is it the issue of attention? It's actually worse. Um oh, <laughs> it's <yeah>. worse. <laughs> so so yeah, the, the one at can was um so, so the attention memory threshold is sits at around two and a half seconds. So one of the big slides that sort of... So let, let's talk about that. So what, what, is, yeah. what do you mean by that? Yeah. So what we know is that attention, sorry, that memory starts to kick in roughly around two and a half seconds. Underneath that, it's... Memory meaning we, we, we begin to remember or we, we yeah. sort of we're effectively reached uh, after two and a half seconds of exposure. Yeah. We, yeah. We I mean, look, there's that. different campaign objectives, right? There's, so there's long and short term. But if you... I mean, I was standing there with Peter Field, so we were talking about long-term effects. So, um, you know, it, it, memory starts to kick in around two and a half seconds where, you know, you might be able to start to think about shifting some of the, uh, I guess, salience attributes of your brand. Um, but what we know is that, it, and remember, this is digital, right? So this is not TV or I haven't included everything. I just took a, a random sample of 130,000 online ad views across socials and um, uh, general web, but 85% of them don't hit that. What you're thinking about is the slide that talks about the viewability piece. So I think it's 75% of viewable ads do not get any active attention. So that's pretty crazy, but that aligns to what we already spoke about, which is time and view fails those that track viewability. Um, so the, the concept is great. I remember you know, even when it came out, I give credit to the MRC for putting a line in the sand and saying, you know, there has to be a point where an ad is is officially saleable. But the problem being is that the 
the underlying variable fails that notion. So, so two different things that you just asked me about. But yeah, both of those pieces of work have hit people in the face pretty hard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it is it is stunning to think about that and um, to such a high number. So, if the if the value of an exposure is not equal across platforms. Are there different buckets that you would put various platforms into? Are 100%. there are there types that you could share with us? So I'm not big on on explaining the types. Um, I try to stay independent of that. Um, but 100%, I don't like to call one out versus the other. There are definitely different buckets. I can predict them. They're reasonably constant across the globe. There are some nuances that that change it. So for your point, you know the fit for purpose does make a difference. So, and we've included all of that in the hierarchy and we're quite transparent about that. But what I tend not to do is go, you know, TikTok's better than Insta, Facebook's better than TV, TV's worse than, you know, outdoor, blah, 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 blah. Is there in your mind sort of a solution to this? Because there's, are there many tentacles to it in developing a solution or have you guys come across that yet where you're like, okay, here's the challenge uh, here's the data to back it up, but is there yet a sense of a kind of a prescriptive set of behaviors that you suggest to to um, solve it, or or is that not your world? It is my world. The best way to manage this problem we're solving for is just to use buying tools um, that essentially allows people to, as I said, overlay. Um, attention decay curves with their or using parallel I guess to traditional reach curves which is stuff that we're working on and also you know for buying and verification using impression level meta tags but trained on real human continuous attention because that then allows for you know, triggers at the point of uh, point of transaction or in flight. So, so I guess my point is, it's not one size fits all, but there are some simple tools that are emerging that can fix this problem without it being too complicated. Is there a sort of an outlier or some examples of outliers that you've come across that have sort of gone against this sort of attention or surprised you from an attention metrics perspective that are that are going beyond that two and a half seconds deeply and you can look at them even as outliers to kind of go okay is there some sort of a structure to them is there something are they part of a bigger campaign and therefore they're they're gaining more attention are there characteristics to creative that really stands out as an outlier so I'm not sure if you knew this, but my very first book was on um, content diffusion, so understanding how creative, in essence, goes viral, which I sort of worked out is not a thing in the book. But um, my point was that within that book, the the one thing that changes the game for creative is high emotional content. Now, we do see that in this data, but you asked me a question around whether I see outliers. So so, so for your audience, to put you at the top of this range, emotional content without a doubt, so I call it high arousal positive content. So, you know, it makes you laugh out loud or, you know, literally stop what you're doing kind of thing. But the that still only sits you at the top of this range. The only outliers I've ever 
ever seen is around category. So there are a couple of categories that absolutely all the time, um, I guess, are at the top of the range and then in cases where I do see a few outliers and that's often in entertainment. Um, So, you know, movie trailers and um, gaming trailers and so I think that's a slight yeah, so they're the ones that I see. And yet some of them aren't so, but some of them are. So, but of any, you asked me about outliers, they're the only ones I see in creative. And I'm guessing that's related to high emotion, but it's high emotion with relevance, right? So that's what I put it down to. Yeah, because it's certainly, it's it's not the typically, it, it's not thought to be, uh, and it doesn't feel like an ad. Well, it doesn't feel like an ad, but you're also, particularly in gaming, you know, if you're a gamer, you yeah. want version 500 to come out. <laughs> um, so you're waiting for it or, you know, even think about, you know, all the Netflix series is watch and how you're busting for Ozark version, you know, yeah. number four, you know. <laughs> so it's like I call it emotion and re- with relevance and I think they're the only times, but that's super rare. So for the rest of us that have hygiene ads, not superhero ones, um, it's it's pretty hard. So if what your job is is that you need to understand what these ranges are and you need to work within them. A classic example is we talked before about this distribution piece and how, you know, in second one you might get 90% of people watching. By second two it might be 30%. By second three it might be 5%. So there's a really steep deviation or a steep decay. And then on other formats you might find, the second one, it's only 30% of people. Second two, it's 30% of people. Second three, it's 30% of people. So it's a flatter distribution, but it's sort of stable. So my point with that is if you understand those, the branding piece becomes easier as well. So a big, big mistake people make, particularly on the online forms, is that they fail to put their brand till second two or three you know you'd think ordinarily that's okay but it's not half time most people have scrolled away and you get five percent of your reach actually seeing your brand now if you're if you're a challenger brand not a leading brand naturally what will happen is people will think of your competitor so we see that in a lot of the data that we collect and I might have even said this in can, but we talk about lower attention formats drive less mental availability for you and more for your competitor. That's a classic example because when the just when the attention volume is low, you can't expect to have your brand or your brand sort of render at second three because most people won't see it. And yeah, they'll think of your competitor when you know they see this car driving around. Cars are a classic for it, so it's the it's probably the worst category all cars look the same particularly to girls (laughs) and you know if you put you know Volkswagen or or you know Audi or whatever at at second 15 um it it, you're probably going to be misattributed to bigger competitor yeah it it is it is a classic problem as is spending the first few seconds just on some music that is setting up the concept because the actual ad was designed for originally designed they're just cutting it down to work within a certain time limit and 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 it's 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 something that i think we've we've really as an industry got to get everybody thinking about because if you are an organization that believes in effectiveness this is critical um that we're producing ads that are conceptually appropriate 
and structured appropriately for the environment that they're that they're existing in. Hundred percent. I mean, the best best examples, best in class examples, are when the product is distinctive. So let's forget the brand. Let's go the product, like the shape of the bottle, the shape of the car. Mind you, most cars look the same now, but there are. I mean, when the Beetle was around, you know, the classic shape, and we see it in things like um, uh, Range Rovers and things like they're really quite distinctive compared to some of the other cars. So, it, you know, if you can get your product to be distinctive as well as your brand assets, then you're at least ahead of the curve. Yeah. So what does this mean for buyers in terms of like media buyers? Do we need to be now or maybe are we already because I'm not I'm not uh yeah, I'm not in the media world. It seems to me that there's this opportunity now to be buying not just based upon effective or, or, or on reach, but to be to be saying that the data shows that attention needs to be a factor in terms of what you're willing to pay for a for a particular unit. Hundred percent. So the 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 theme or the words that are coming out are attentive reach. Um, so that basically means that active attention sits behind that reach point. And I think that's a really solid way to think about it. Um, But what I will say, and you mentioned cost, is I'm very opposed to the concept of an attention CPM. And the reason why I am, it's a bit early. I think eventually, let's step back a bit. CPM used to be... Why is it a little early? Why is it early? I'll explain. So CPM used to be... Um, you know, it costs you more for more reach. So your cost per thousand for those who don't know, right? Yes, cost per thousand. Whereas this day and age, CPM has come from 15 years of biddable inventory. So it's basically you pay what you think you should pay and then you pay a bit more because you want that, but then it changes the baseline. And so, so the concept of CPM is all over the place. So in some cases, you pay too much even for your cheap ads relative to the performance of another type of platform, if you like. So my point is CPM or cost does not relate at all to performance anymore as it used to. It's not relative. So when you add a variable like CPM to a, which I call a dirty variable, to a really clean variable like attention, what can happen is you can still, you can still pull down how much attention you buy because you're buying low cost CPM. So I do not believe in it at all. I think when when the when it the uh, when the lights are on and people start to understand relative performance of the different platforms and formats from an attention perspective, I but I truly believe CPM will start to sort of you know stabilize and and be a bit more have more ability to be like unit pricing in the old days where you go to the shops and you can see how many dollars per hundred grams, for example. So who? Are, are there are there um, are there media agencies that are sort of incorporating this this idea of attentive reach? Are, are they sort of adopting every, it, or are you finding every resistance? single agency in the world is on either have data or it's on their agenda right now? It is well and truly past, I guess, critical mass and sort of edging towards. So from a from an innovation perspective, it's absolutely moved beyond beyond uh, concept. So it's pretty exciting to see, to be honest. And, you know, I love it. My biggest concern for the industry is that we, we maintain the rigor and the trust and the consistency and the transparency, because like, 
unfortunately, marketers tend to do, you know, some sort of racing to commoditize it quickly and cheaply and easily and badly. Um, so that's my biggest concern. But without a doubt, every single agency globally have either had a touch point with it, have integrated it. We've got we've got our data in four of the holding codes, you know. So it's well and truly here and it's pretty exciting. So, you know, for me, I feel like my job's done to try and sort of highlight the error, to try and help fix the problem um, and to move on. My goal is that, you know, my job will be over in the next five years because this will be sort of table stakes. And I think that's where it's headed. So how long how long ago did they begin adopting it? The, holding, um, the big holding companies, for example, is this a r- relatively new, new thing? Yeah, two years. Two years, okay. Yeah. So how have I've got to I've got to imagine that with the adoption at, of of this at the at the holding company levels, how are the platforms now responding? They can't so be happy. <laughs> uh, some want to shoot me. Some love me. No. Um, look, if I'm really honest, I think it's at a point where. And I'm glad we started where we started. I'm glad we started from the end consumer, which is the brand, right? Um, but I think had we started to try and push the needle with the publishers to begin with, we wouldn't have got anywhere. But the choice was to get adoption from, you know, sort of early ethical leaders and certainly there's plenty of them, you, you know, you'll, you'll see some press around those that sort of shine through. Um, but the publishers have got no choice now so the ones that you're probably thinking about that are trying to push back are engaging so interestingly a large large part of our business are publishers who come to us to work with them and you know most of them are in discovery trying to understand what inventory works and doesn't you know there's nerves don't get me wrong but most of them generally genuinely want to understand how certain ad units perform within the context of their websites or their platforms. Um, and then some of them have made decisions to make change. So that's pretty exciting for us. Um, and when we say they make change, they understand the differences in functionality that cause distraction versus attention and, you know, made minor changes. You know, there's always a commercial conversation in that. Yeah. But, um, you know, an available inventory, you know, and it's really difficult, I feel, for publishers because there's a trade-off between being able to make money and the user experience. So switching a little bit, because I'd love to get your perspective on this, and, and tell me if I'm if I'm wrong in this assumption. If the value of exposures are not equal, doesn't that undermine the theory that share of voice correlates with share of market? In other words, it's not just about the total spend number, that it's really about yeah, effective spend in a way. That's I'm just you, making that up. You no, no, you absolutely got it in one. And again, this new paper that I'm writing is time in view is the downfall of modern measurement. And that's because it sits underneath that. Now people don't really realize that, but step back. Um you will have seen that um Peter Field has found that over time the relationship between share of voice and share of market has failed. It's not failing. It has failed and he shows the time scale across the last sort of 12 years. And the reason why that's happening is because that's at the point where, and I talk about this concept of we started, we stopped measuring humans, so we stopped measuring outward 
and we had this thing called digital. So we needed a scalable metric. We started to measure inward, which was, you know, meta tags or metadata and in particular time in view. So to your point, when, you know, if you're spending, if you've got a million dollars and you spend it on these different platforms and these different ad units and formats, and then your competitor spends a million dollars but spends it on a completely different set of uh, platforms and formats and ad units, if you happen to have chosen the ones that for the same price have less attention volume than your competitor, what that really actually means is you're getting less eyeballs, full stop. Now, if you think about the concept of share of voice, share of market, it used to be that every dollar spent would be equal, like you could, you could, you could um, I guess, benchmark yourself against your competitors. So their million dollars and your million dollars were were equal, but it's not anymore. So what we've learned between our research uh, streams is that the 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 point at which share of voice, share of market relationships started to fail was exactly the same point at which we stopped measuring humans and we started, which is outward, and we started to measure inward. So we started to measure, you know, metadata that makes assumptions and wrong assumptions about human behavior. So it's super fun. It is interesting for those who follow this. Um, Byron Sharp, who seems to be uh, consistently in the news um, in terms of sort of disagreeing with people, um, he recently, maybe maybe three or four weeks back, um, he sort of expressed his cynicism, or at least he, the fact that he, the impression is that he sort of questions the value of attention. What do you think of the differences between how both of you think? Um, so what you should understand is I did my PhD at Ehrenberg Bass. So of all people to ask that question, <laughs> I'm pretty qualified. Um, so what I totally agree with him on is that reach-based planning works. So his whole, I guess, research and thesis across the last, you know, 20 years even is that penetration leads to brand growth. So get more people to buy, your your brand will grow. Don't disagree with that. Where he fails because of lack of understanding is he says, oh, you don't need attention, you just need reach. But that in itself is fundamentally flawed. So in theory, I agree. Because, because he, there's a ton of assumptions in the idea of reach. And what in essence you're saying is it's about effective reach. Well, he doesn't, they don't, they don't understand the media there pipes. There's no delineation. They don't, they don't yeah. understand the media pipes. It's simple as that. So in theory, I agree that reach-based planning works, but to kind of stick to these basics, you need for the underlying reach point to be effective or, you know, to reach the same thing. And it doesn't, and that's where it falls down. So yeah, he's, he's got his wires crossed. So another dimension of this, which is uh, a classic uh, hurdle, is the, the way that we have been, we've been trained, we've been almost programmed to act a certain way. And a great point that you brought up in, in one of your papers is the fact that procurement teams inside clients, they're struggling with the need to pay more for more attention because they think about it as their task their brief is to reduce costs or at least not to pay more for it. 
that just seems to is that changing or is that still the case and and it seems to be a critical part of of making this course correction is that we've got to associate what we're spending with performance and i don't mean performance marketing i mean with results that are effective you are spot on look what i say in every speech that i do or every keynote i talk about bring procurement along for the journey because their remit to your point is cost reduction not not pay more for less. Um, so, so you know, I, I think that's a, a stumbling block, but I also think it's getting beyond that now. There's so much push for effective reach now using attention as that baseline. I think we're beyond that point. Yeah, I wanted to touch on, um, finally, the you did touch on a little bit earlier, but I'd love to get a little bit more about it. What What's next? What do you feel you understand now and what's next in this world that you're that you're working on and trying to build sort of an empirical evidence around so for me this last six months has been really valuable so we have now i think i mentioned got to a point now where we see systematic sameness across multiple sets of data right so we're literally moving into a point where we've We've moved away from case evidence and now I can predict. I can predict without any difficulty what's going to happen and it typically happens. So um, for me, that's the key. And, and, and that would be based upon with in terms of a bundling of platforms or a bundling of channels within a plan. You can then do an analytics on that. Yeah, I mean, attention. it's a lot of things. It's it's a it's about what we talked about with creative. So I can predict what's going to happen to your creative, and I'll get I'll get a brand come back to me and say, no, 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 ours is different, and we'll run it in you know in a collection somewhere in the world, and we'll go, mm, it's not. Um, but for me, the important part for us, what's next, is that we apply all these norms to build product that works, and that's kind of we're slower to the market than some of the others in the marketplace because. Given my background, I wanted to make sure that what we actually build will never fail, that, you know, because of these norms, um, it will be built into, you know, planning, buying, verification um, that literally can act as a solid sort of stable, reliable, um, I guess, tool. The other thing that I'm a bit excited about is what sits underneath seconds so, like I said, it's sort of touched on it before, is not only can we see what happens at the platform level in terms of attention and format level, but we're also seeing that individuals are predictable. Um, so under the under the surface, we can see these systematic viewing profiles or we've, we've clustered viewing profiles, if you like, that exist under the surface. So what that means is that at the impression level, rather than, going this format is likely to do this, we can actually work out which humans are likely to do this. So that's pretty exciting. So that just takes accuracy to a whole nother level. So it's complicated, so I don't want to stress anyone out, um, but it's it's moving beyond averages, units, you know, indexes to how can we how can we make attention prediction? really accurate at the individual level that's what gets me out of bed so what's define individual individual human so you know as soon as you start to build 
um, or sorry, as soon as you start to scroll, even for the first millisecond, I can predict the type of um, viewing pattern that you'll fall under. And at the at the trading end, you can, you know, bid or reject um, against the type of viewer you are relative to your the outcomes that you want to achieve. So stuff like that's starting to get real for me. Wow. Anything else you want to touch on, Karen, before we wrap? No, no, I'm no. I, I think that we, we've covered it. I think um, you did a fantastic job of going completely around the entire ecosystem. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right, I will wrap up. It's Karen Nelson Field, founder and CEO of Amplified Intelligence in Adelaide, Australia. I am so uh, happy that you agreed to come on. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. I had a blast. So that wraps up this seven-part series on planning for effective outcomes. A uh, big thanks to Fergus O'Carroll uh, for organising and running all the interviews. Uh, it's been a great series, really good range of guests, and, and I'm sure if you've listened to all of it, you will have learned uh, a great deal. So thank you to Fergus. Um, we'll be back uh, on the Regular Walk podcast on Thursday. If you like what you've heard, please do follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. And if you really like what you've heard, please do leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.